Welcome to Open World. I'm Rose. And I'm TK. And this is a show about hopeful futures. It is. Uh, And today we're going to space. Do you want to go to space? I want to go to space. I've always wanted to go to space, even though it's the scariest thing (laughs) for me to consider. Space and ocean, but we're not talking about ocean today. That's a different episode. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely different episode. But space, yes. Let's go there. Let's do it. And now, 60 Minutes Through Space by Obsidian Podcast. Is it my shoes? Nope. Okay, the road. It's the road we're on. Wrong again. Yo, I give up. This is dumb. Amar, don't call your sister's game dumb. Mom, I've been guessing for over 10 minutes. So you're admitting defeat then? I'm admitting that it's dumb. Want me to tell you? Yes. Fine. Let's just get it over with. I spy with my little eye. The black fist raised in protest across the globe. (laughs) You can't be serious. That's my baby. How could I have guessed that? I don't even see it. I see black defiance everywhere. Oh my God, what are you even talking about? You're nine. And nine-year-olds are smart. Also, Daddy? Yeah, Maya? What does protest mean? Oh my god, you don't even know what the word means. Amar, a protest is like an expression of disapproval. You can do it alone or you could do it with the group. Where'd you hear that word used? A documentary in the Holocube. I was standing right next to Michael X during a speech 100 years ago. Uh, that's Malcolm X, sweetie. Oh, yeah. That does sound better. See, Amar, you could be learning some history, too. You weren't just using the Halo Cube for gaming. I don't use it just for gaming, Mom. Besides, I already know a thing or two. Like the space pole we're going to is in a state that's racist as hell. Language, young man. My bad. But where'd you hear that? The History Channel. Someone died protesting against white supremacy in Virginia like 50 years ago. Well, that's right. In Charlottesville. I don't want you to worry about that too much, though, Omar. We're hoping things have changed a lot since then. But we're glad you're aware, honey. Kevin, look up ahead. That's the entrance on the right. Yep, I see it. Blue orbit in all its glory. Finally. Just on time, too. Told you we should take exit three, baby. Or at least let the car auto-drive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like to hold the steering wheel every once in a while. Can't let the computer have all the fun now, can I? Woo! We gonna space! We gonna space! Come on, let's head towards the front of the spaceport. How long is the trip, Ma? About 60 minutes, give or take. So we drove an hour to fly an hour? More like propel an hour. You'll be in space, remember? It's hardly flying when there's no air. I guess. 
Why is he being so difficult? He loves space. He's a teenager. He's gonna be difficult about everything. Don't let it bother you, babe. As soon as we exit the atmosphere, he'll open up. Watch. You're right, you're right. I was just looking forward to, well, geeking out with him, like we used to. You still can. Thank you. Whoa! What was that, Mom? That was a launch. See the blue shimmer? That's accumulated solar radiation used for initial liftoff or propulsion. Condensed photons look like that? Whoa. Mm-hmm. Come on, you two. No need to stare when the real thing is inside. See? Welcome to Blue Orbit Spaceport, Virginia. You are now entering one of the only five spaceports in the world. Make sure you have your ticket and identification in hand when approaching the shuttle office. Blue Orbit was founded in 2034 by a group of individuals dedicated to expanding space. Alrighty then. Good morning. Ah, morning, ma'am. You're the launch party of four? That's us. <laughs> Excellent. Can I have your IDs, please? Here you go. Alrighty. Oh, Mrs. Walker. Mrs. Atiana Walker. I'm sorry I didn't know it was you. My name is Trevor. It's all good, Trevor. I just started anyways. How does he know Mommy? She's the new Intercontinental Space Travel Ambassador. Intercont-what? The ISTA. Oh, her new job. Cool. <laughs> Alrighty, well, let's get you guys set up then. I'll lead you to your shuttle. Excellent, thank you. Okay, baby, look at you. Got these white folks shaking in their boots. <laughs> Shut up, Kevin. Right this way. As you can see, we have about 12 launch chutes within this spaceport. You'll be setting off from chute number four. Oh. My. God. Four's my lucky number. Since when? Since yesterday. You know, I was talking to Jessica from school about this place. Uh, cool. She definitely didn't mention how shiny everything here is. Well, this place is state-of-the-art. Blue Orbit is top of the line when it comes to space travel. Indeed we are. Doesn't hurt that we're the first to do it as well. We've had lots of practice. Now, as you can see here, at the center of the chute is your actual shuttle. Notice that below the shuttle is a conical cavity. This is where solar radiation is stored and compressed. We've managed to capture the photons themselves in a non-interactive state. That is, until we say so. On our command, they triggered the initial liftoff of a shuttle. Wow. It's got to be extremely cold within that cavity to capture the photons. Well, yes, they are, young man. Less than a microkelvin, actually. Your son is quite sharp, Mrs. Walker. Yeah, he is. Alrighty then. To the shuttle. Oh, and uh, here is the operator of the shuttle, George Weller. Huh? Oh, oh hey. Well, I'll leave you all to it. Don't want to waste time getting you up to the stars. George, do me a favor. Show some enthusiasm for a change. Also, turn that down. Can't make any promises, boss man, but I'll see what I got today. Well, have a great trip, Mr. and Mrs. Walker. Uh, hey, so pretty standard procedure. Lucky for us, Blue Orbit has made getting to space pretty chill. I do have to go through a boring safety regulation spiel, though. All you need are these bracelets. They'll alleviate any nausea that you could feel. Plus, they'll work with the computers in this bad boy to negate any of the G-forces that you would feel in regular takeoff. Well, that's appreciated. 
Speaking of takeoff, please refrain from moving as we do so. Your seats are state-of-the-art and will ensure your safety, as long as you stay strapped in. The neck braces are equipped with multiple sensors that will read your heart rate, body heat, weight, and more. The seats will adjust according to those biometrics. In the worst-case scenario, the seat will itself encase you in a miniature armored pod that will ensure your protection and safe descent. As such, keep hands and feet close to the seat as we take off and descend. In case of emergency, oxygen masks will automatically be secured over your face from the neck brace. The masks themselves will allow us to communicate as well. Okay, speed lower. Whew, great. Anything else we need to know? Uh, nope. Just take a seat there, buckle in, and we'll hit the road. Or the sky, I guess. Initiating liftoff in 60 seconds. Oh, wow. So soon? You nervous, baby? Me? No, no. I, I just want to make sure we get there in one piece, that's all. Like Amar said, this is state of the art. No different from a bus ride at this point. If you say so, you're the expert, I guess. Ten seconds. Alright, hold on everyone. Amar? Yeah? Hold my hand. Yeah, I got you. Lift up. Enjoy your trip with Blue Orbit. Traveling through the atmosphere, right? Yo, at this speed, it's literally burning air molecules off the window. Whoa! Is that true, mommy? Yeah, pretty much. The sky is on fire. <clears throat> oh, my stomach. I thought you said the bracelet <clears throat> was supposed to make it easy, kid. Well, I said alleviate. Would be a hell of a lot worse if you didn't have it on, sir. Here, chew this. Gum usually helps. does actually help. Thanks. No problem. Pay attention to the windows, folks. This is one of my favorite parts. Wow, it's all turning black. Are we actually in space space? Aw, oh, shit. Give me some more of that gum, George. Whoa. What is that unfolding? Uh, are those? Solar sails. From this point on, we're propelled by solar radiation directly emitted from the sun. They create a sort of current. Ever watch Finding Nemo? Hell yeah. A classic. That super old movie mom and dad made us watch. <sighs> super old? It ain't that old. Is it, baby? Well, just like how Marlon rides the East Australian current with the turtles, we're riding, let me see, Solar Flow Elio 5. We'll reach the moon in about 60 minutes. We have exited the atmosphere and the launch process is now over. We have entered travel mode. You are free to move about the cabin. So, can we walk around? Yeah, go ahead. Artificial gravity is active, so you won't go flying anywhere. Awesome! Come on, Amar! Be careful, you two. Don't touch anything. I know, I know. Whew, what a sight. How does one become a space pilot, George? You go to MIT or something? Uh, not exactly, Mr. Walker. What? Caltech? I actually sort of dropped out. Dropped out? Out of magna cum laude to just cum laude, you mean? 
Surely that's what you mean. Kevin, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to fly a space shuttle. Since when? The technology has advanced far beyond that point. Though you should have an aviation experience and a degree. And I do. Well, the experience part. I actually passed the proficiency test rather well. Regardless, to even take the exam, you usually need a bachelor's at least. I have my certification in everything, ma'am. And, well, my great uncle is sort of the founder of Blue Orbit, so that got me in the door. Man, I tell you, white people really be failing upward, huh? Hush, Kevin. Well, if you pass the proficiency test, then that's the most important part. Not an easy exam. Not at all, ma'am. Honestly, I wanted to be a frontier pilot. And what's that? Frontier pilots fly beyond our established boundaries of space travel. They basically create new boundaries with each trip they make. Yeah, they're currently aiming to fly across the asteroid belt. When I was younger, that was just an idea, until they began venturing past Mars. That's when I knew that they were moving towards the future. So what stopped you? I suck at school. <laughs> but uh, being out here isn't so bad. I really do love space. Some people find it lonely, but how can you be with billions of stars and planets surrounding you to keep you company? It's the one time I feel like we're all connected to something. Sorry, I'm spouting off some nonsense right now. No, George. I find it very commendable that you found something that speaks to your calling like this. Most people would envy you. Who knows? You may still be a frontier pilot. You made it past the education barrier. Better call up your grand uncle again and ask him for two more wishes. Man, I wish. Mom, come check this out. I think they have ion thrusters on the side to autocorrect. Ion thrusters! Ugh, he won't stop talking about ion this, ion that. <laughs> I told him to play I Spy With Me and he keeps saying no. Relax, baby. You know this is the type of stuff Amar likes. Let him enjoy it. It doesn't even matter. We'll land on the moon and I'll have all the fun I want at Artemis. Artemis? Artemis Resorts down in the moon colony? I thought we were supposed to- Uh, anyway. Let's join your brother. Maybe we can combine I Spy with some science and make it fun for both of you. Oh, boy. Nearing the moon, we'll be arriving in three minutes. Wow. Seeing it so close? I never realized just how large this guy is. Weird, right? Most of your life has been spent with the moon being the size of a golf ball at most. With all these satellites wrapped around it. It nearly looks like it has rings. Oh. My. God. Oh my god! I'm so excited! Brittany at school told me all about Artemis Resorts, the first actual theme park on the moon. They have zero-g apartments, lunar rides, and cotton candy that they say tastes even better because it's made on the moon. Blue Ivy even performed here once. What if she's here today? Oh. My. God! This is gonna be crazy. Uh. Yes. Calm down, honey. I can't! I'll calm down when I'm swimming in a zero-gravity pool, when I'm watching a lunar circus show, Beginning when... slingshot calculation to return to Earth. What did the ship just say? Trying to tell you, Maya, but you didn't want to listen. Mom! Why aren't we landing? We're... we're going around the moon! Maya, this was a free trip as a gift from my new employer to our family. But the trip is there and back. What? That little Artemis resort is far too expensive. But I already told Brittany I was going to come back with Lunar Cotton Candy. Sorry, Maya. We can get some cotton candy when we land, though. It's not the same. Hey, uh, George. I think I could drive this thing? No can do, kid. Come on, George. You said it was easy. You don't even need an education for it, right? That, that is not what I said. Um, you kinda did. Nah, no. 
Well, sort of. Not not fully. Listen, you're not going to drive. Come on, George. Let me drive a it's boat. Not, it's, it's not like a boat. It's not like a car. Do you have a license? As far as you know. Then if you can't drive, you can't, you can't drive in space. Oh, come on, nah. man. It's not... All right, TK, that was so good. There are so many things to say about that piece. I think my favorite is that in a lot of sci-fi, you don't see families that much. It's often like rogue man goes alone to space, you know, and this has got (laughs) such that that good family dynamic. Did that feel like, did that resonate with you? Oh, for sure. It reminded me of the TV shows in the 80s, like the Cosby show and uh, Family Ties and any show that had just a a group of people going through a thing together. And just their interactivity, I just, I really appreciated the real conversations. Like I felt like these were things that I would say to my dad, my mom, Mm -hmm. my brother. So um, I really appreciated it. it. And I also appreciated just Black people in space. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Period. That's it. Yeah. That's that's the tweet. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And we talk about that in the interview that you'll hear, like, you know, centering those narratives and having characters that don't get to go a lot of the time. Um, or if they do get to go, they're kind of a bit character who doesn't, you know, have a super important role or or they're there to make a point and not as like a really well fleshed yeah. out person. And this piece has none of that. This piece has really great characters, like you said, super relatable. I love the sibling dynamic, really yeah. good. Um, and also manages to do both that with that sort of lighthearted tone and the jokes and at the same time raise some really important questions around access yeah. and who gets to go and what that looks like, which I think is threading that needle is so hard. So hard. But the creators of Obsidian Podcast did such a great job walking that fine line but before we go there, a quick commercial break, and then we'll come back with Ade and Sophia of Obsidian Podcasts. Thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk about this story and also Obsidian in general. Um, And actually, before we get into 60 Minutes Through Space, can you both maybe tell me a little bit about Obsidian more broadly and sort of how this project came together? Basically, the shtick of Obsidian is a speculative fiction anthology podcast. And so we are examining the crossroads of blackness and technology and uh, science, all of those great things under the umbrella or the mindset of Afrofuturism. And so that's the the greater theme of all of our episodes. Yeah, you touched on so many things that I want to ask about, um, and I'll come <laughs> back to Afrofuturism. The first phase of sort of Obsidian is relationships. And I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you picked that theme specifically. Part of where this idea of Obsidian came from was very community-based. Uh, we were thinking about, like I said, what the, the things that worried our communities. And when we think about communities, what are those? Those are a lot of interpersonal relationships. Um, they're between different people, between friends and within families. They're the uh, stories that your parents had to tell their kids at night before they go to bed. 
Um, and they're the things that, you know, students are talking to each other about. So we realized that relationships was like a very core part of like our communities and core part of why we thought this uh, obsidian should even, you know, exist in the first place. Um, and then within relationships, you just, there's just so much to like, you know, unpack. Yeah. And you noted in the recap episode um, and listeners who are listening to this should absolutely go listen to the other two because it's a really interesting set, right, of three. Um, but you noted in the recap episode that this one that we just heard is by far the most sort of like hopeful and fun and kind of like happy <laughs> version of relationships that you encounter. And you talked in that recap episode a little bit about why, but I'm wondering if you can talk here about like why did you want to balance out that sort of maybe like fun and light episode with some of the more sort of like serious, somewhat scary at moments <laughs> episodes later on? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we were we were asked the same question and we thought that the best way to introduce the podcast and the and the project was with like a warm embrace, really. A lot of people don't know what Afrofuturism is, uh, as as weird as it is to imagine, at least for us, because we've been, you know, working in that world for a while. But we wanted to have give like a nice, easy way for people to understand what the genre even was in the first place. And then we didn't want to start too harshly. Um a lot of black stories are like laced with trauma. And we didn't really want to take that route. Um, so we thought it would be nice to just have a wholesome family going on a road trip this time to space. We don't see black families represented out of space. And what do those conversations look like? Uh, what is the sociopolitical climate of when they can achieve this goal of going out of space as a family? Um, and so those are just things we were thinking about, like, what's this whole world look like since it's not very common that we see it in the media? And yeah, while while it is definitely straightforward, it's no less it's no less important, you know. Like we don't have to have pain in our in our families, pain in our stories for them to be essential or important. So we wanted to make sure that like our listeners knew we felt that way ourselves. You know, one thing that struck me too about it is you in classic science fiction, you don't see families at, at all a lot of the time. It's always like oh, yeah. the lone Definitely. white guy <laughs> who's like, you know, going to space by himself yeah, somehow, yeah. you know, and like you you rarely see families. And of course, you very rarely see black families. But I thought that was such an interesting way of recontextualizing the classic, right? The like, oh, we're going to space. But actually, it's it's more of this relationship driven story, which I really loved as sort of a, a way into and a surprising way into maybe a story that feels like people have heard it before, perhaps. When you thought about building that family, can you talk a little bit about like thinking about like those characters and, and how you actually built that family that we hear? One of, the first <laughs> one of the first characters, it was so easy, was uh, Maya, the little nine-year-old girl, because I have a 10-year-old <laughs> sister. Um, who was actually nine at the time that I was writing that story. So it was very easy for that those characters to come together. I could imagine um, Maya and uh, her brother and the entire relationship was really just the way me and my little sisters like interact. Um, so I, it was very easy for me to put myself into that space. And then actually, uh, there's a couple movies I was referencing. One of them was Are We There Yet? The uh, old like 2005 Ice Cube movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's 05, <laughs> I might be wrong about that. But um, I just love the dynamic of that story as well. Uh, the like whole concept of being stuck in one little compartment with your family and how they frustrate you at some points, but you also love the experience with them. I try to replicate that myself with like a more sci-fi oriented story. So it, it felt it felt very easy actually, because I mean, it's black families and Sophia and I are from black families. So we could just draw from like our own backgrounds. 
One thing, you know, it is a sort of fun, happy story, but there's also a lot of commentary around access and around equality and around who gets to go and and what that looks like. And, you know, certain people have to give 200 percent and some people just sort of have an uncle who works at the company and happen to be able to, you know, be the pilot. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you know, in, in thinking about making you mentioned you wanted this to be a warm embrace. You wanted it to be kind of an intro to the series that felt um made people want to return. How do you balance sort of wanting that sort of warm embrace with also sort of the reality and sort of bringing in some of those conversations around access and equality? I think a lot of media today doesn't trust listeners, viewers, whatever, whoever's consuming. Um, they're afraid to challenge, you know, the public really. Uh, you're right, like episode one was definitely a warm embrace, but we still, like you, like you guys caught on, uh, caught upon, we touched on some like class issues, um, accessibility issues. And we were very intentional about that because we didn't think people couldn't handle that. You know, just because it's like a happy story doesn't mean we can't think about like the cold rea- realities of like the sh- social structures that we live with today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try for all our episodes to challenge our listeners to some degree. And I think listeners actually appreciate that. Um, there's a lot of media that's kind of pushed forward that's just very sugar-coated. And it's like it's fun at a, to a certain point. Then you realize you're not getting much from it or you're not really it's not leaving you with anything. You don't walk away thinking about it. And with these type of stories, we want people to leave and still have these thoughts wearing their head. Like, that was a cute family, but damn, I didn't think about the fact that, you know, the pilot just got access to that job because he knew somebody or he was part of a family. Like, that's something you got to think about and then something you relate to your real life. That actually leads right into my next question, which was going to be, you know, when people end listening to this episode, you know, what are you hoping that they're thinking about or feeling at the end of 60 Minutes Through Space? I am hoping that they feel seen uh, and maybe even heard. Well, something that we're very proud of is that um, a woman on Twitter told us that she had a really great experience listening to the episode with her child. And um, it was a Muslim woman and she felt happy that it was appropriate, I guess um, you could say, yeah, that she could, she and her child could imagine themselves in the same situation. So just to go back um, a tiny bit to the concept of Afrofuturism, Ade, you noted earlier that maybe not everybody knows what that is. So can you define it for us and talk about why it is important to your work? I like to think of Afrofuturism as a mindset and ideology that you live by uh, towards bettering your future in any kind of way. I've been thinking a lot about mundane Afrofuturism, um, which was uh, talked a lot by um, Martine Sims, who is a artist and writer um, who wrote the Mundane Afrofuturist Manifesto. Just bettering your life and the way you think and perceive and understand and navigate your life. Um, and yeah, there's like a so. very literal definition. I, Mark Derry ter- coined the term back in like the 80s. 1993. Oh, she, she got the, the year on the spot. Back in 1993. But yeah, he coined the term and it's really, you know, African-Americans or, or black folk really actually existing in sci-fi stories, um, something kind of related to mysticism sometimes, something related to space. But at the same time, I think it's important what Sophia just said because it's kind of recapturing the term and, and you know, changing it as time passes, um, changing it to fit the needs of us, like our black community. Because frankly, Mark Derry was a white man. 
and what he was seeing was that he was identifying like a genre that was you know coming that was actually not coming to uh, it had already existed for a while before mm-hmm. then but um, he was identifying it at that point of time but that does not necessarily mean that's exactly what it is it's really up to the black community to decide what it is and that also that's going to change with every decade um, our kids are probably going to have their own definition of Afrofuturism is and that's completely okay mm-hmm. um, but generally for people that have never heard the term we usually use a Black Panther as an example because truth be told it is a really good example of what Afrofuturism is yeah. in like the 2010s um, now we're in 2020 but yeah so that's that's what we use yeah so a lot of Afrofuturistic work plays with time right and like collapses time and moves time and you know Yatasha Womack talks about Afrofuturism is where the past and the future meet right like in her book um and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about because there are references to the future and the past in this piece, right? There's this reference to like, I hope things have changed or, you know, we've come a long way and sort of like collapsing down that time as a, a moment in this piece. And I'm curious how you think about playing with time in Obsidian and I, maybe in the fu- the other two episodes, it's a little more obvious, but I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that, the linearity of futurism and sci-fi, the way it is commonly portrayed and then the way that you are thinking about it with Obsidian and this in this Afrofuturistic lens? So Afrofuturism is definitely a story or like a genre that's very future forward, forward facing. Um, and once you once you already put yourself into that like perspective, into that lens of thinking, what you're really speaking on is your present. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're talking, if you're writing and creating worlds that you see for yourself in the future, you're saying what is shackling me currently and how do I see myself either breaking those bonds in the future or not breaking those bonds. So like the stories that end up being taking place 50 years in the future, 100 years in the future, it's very interesting to see what remains constant, what's the same as like, you know, 2020 right now and what has changed. And in those like aspects of a story is, is hope. And, and in, the, in other aspects of the story is maybe a lack of hope or a identifying of a, such a concrete issue that some things can't change in 50 years. It's up to the writer to decide that. So I, I do think, uh, for example, actually, Kindred is a really good uh, book that I've read by Octavia Butler, and it was one of the most interesting uh, depictions of time and Afrofuturism that I've ever experienced. When you're going back in time, it's it makes you re we analyze your, your present, you know? And she comes back to the present multiple times and it's always very startling and jarring for her. Mm-hmm. And I think the same could be said when we think future stories as well. So um, time travel within these stories is, just, is very fluid and it's something that happens even in the discussions we have in, like, in reality. When we go to create policy, we're talking about a future that we want. You know, when we, when we fight politically, when we protest, when we riot, whatever it may be, it's all about it's all about the future. It's not about the present or the past often. Yeah, and since I imagine Afrofuturism as a ideology, I kind of feel like it's nonlinear since it pops up in all different points in time of people historically doing things that are really bold and risk-taking, but so that they can advance the lives of, the, of themselves and those around them, just like all of these are examples of mundane, that's in air quotes for those uh, listening, <laughs> Afrofuturism. Um, but really those were like not mundane, those were like, incredible. So much of the language that 
is commonly used around travel to space, sort of re- repeats or replicates like harmful history, right? We talk about colonizing space rather than like traveling to space. And I'm curious, you know, if you think that fiction and particularly Afrofuturistic fiction can kind of help counter some of those narratives and some of those sort of frameworks that people are using currently to talk about specifically space travel. Terminology is such a powerful thing. Words are such a powerful thing. The way that we structure our understanding of the world impacts the way we continue to look at the world. Like, um, you're completely correct. When you talk about <laughs> colonizing a new place, you have to understand the weight of the gravity of that word because we've, we, like, humanity has colonized other, other people in this, on this planet. So moving forward, again, again, we're talking about future, future-facing like thoughts, future-facing perspectives. Moving forward, using those type of terms for certain, certain things means that you're actually already entrenching the future in the, in the past. You know, you're not you're repeating uh, past mistakes. So yeah, Afrofuturism uh, is one of the many tools that our communities use to like fight against that. Um, there's many others, but media art is a powerful tool for things like uh, things like you're talking about right now. Um, After like changing the language, like you said, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in our stories, if we're purposely avoiding certain phrases um, or like how people now are really being cognizant of using uprising versus ride in uh, social landscapes, um, but things like that, your word choice in the future shows how you feel about how language should be used. So yeah, I do think um, as artists, we do have a responsibility to help uh, dictate what the future could be, uh, what we think the future should be. And yeah, a lot of it has to do with the language that we use and the stories that we tell and what we think, what we hope for the future based off our stories. Yeah. I have a couple more fun questions. Well, Mm -hmm. I thought those were kind of fun questions, but these are more light questions maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you envision moon travel for all of us in our lifetimes? In our lifetime? Yeah, probably. I, I, uh, our lifetime? Uh, Saying that we live past 50 <laughs> years from now is, is already a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. like yeah. very hopeful. Yeah, um, but in this, in this realm but of I hopefulness, can see it. you know, I would say by the time I die, it's probably gonna be pretty expensive but doable. Giving um, you live <laughs> that long. I'm, I'm saying I'm wow. being hopeful. I talk about we're talking about a hopeful lens right now, but yes, if I live long, yes. hopefully, yeah, I think I think it'd be possible, but very expensive. It won't be accessible. It, you and I would not have been, you know, going to the moon. It's like people like Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos that were like, oh shit, I just checked out the a moon colony or something like that, and that that's even hopefully thinking. But the next generation definitely, I definitely oh. think the next generation is going to become more and more accessible. Um, also, if we bring it back to less hopeful terms and think about climate change, it's very likely that the humanity is going to have to leave the planet. Um, so people are already thinking about how we're going to, you know, uh, inhabit other uh, planets and set up colonies there. So, you know, I guess push come to shove, we might have to be <laughs> be on the moon. One thing we're asking everybody is if you have a favorite piece of sort of hopeful media about the future, and that can be a song, a movie, a TV show, a book, like anything that you think of when you think of sort of your favorite piece of hopeful future imagining. That might be the hardest question you've hopeful. asked. <laughs> the present's all about dystopias, man. Like that's what people mm. love to create and write about these days. Hopeful futures. 
You know what is ironically very hopeful? The movie Interstellar. Because, um, what's her name? Anne Hathaway's character. She takes her helmet off in this on this distant planet and she's breathing. It's crazy. They're like, you want us to believe this? Um, <laughs> and then they build this whole um, society, community on some weird, I don't know, space floating. Or are they on a planet? No, it wasn't a planet. It was actually it was, like a shuttle ring thing yeah, that they were, they so, were living in. They have, you know, how we see those like stations, space stations that they're living on. And I'm like, I think they wanted that movie to end with a hopeful tone. And so that is my answer. Wow. Because I think that was hopeful. It's actually, wow. Um, I'm going to use that same answer and for a slightly different reason, though. Um, one of my favorite things about that movie, Interstellar, is one of the things it's criticized the most about. And it's also related to Anne Hathaway. And there's a scene in which they're deciding what planet for them to go to. Like, there was, I think they have two choices, and they're like, which planet do we, you know, we only have so much fuel left, which one are we gonna go for? And the two men on the shuttle are they're like, yeah, let's definitely go towards this one, because on paper, it's like clearly the best choice. But Anne Hathaway's like, no, we gotta go to the other, other planet. And they're like, why? And then they dissect the reason is basically because like somebody that she was in love with before had left on a previous journey to that planet. So if he survived, he'd, he'd be alive there. And so, of course, uh, being men, <laughs> they're like, that's dumb. You know, there's, there's no <laughs> reason for us to, you know, make a, such a vital choice for that, for that reason, for the guy that you're in love with. Then she had a great monologue, one of, I think, Anne Hathaway's best performances, in which she talks about love being such a central and powerful core theme in humanity and how it should push us to make decisions sometimes. It's so disgusting. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's incredible like, because we're letting I love think guide decisions now. <laughs> no, it's incredible. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. I think science, um, and general science today, is so, so controlled by white men who decided that the lack of emotion is the best way to conduct science, which is just truly like false. In fact, that directs science towards some of the worst acts of science in, in history. You know, some of the most racist acts of science have been from a very non-emotive you know, perspective. But being considerate of humanity, being considerate of like where we all stand and collectivism and stuff is actually a great approach to science. And in the end, that planet is where uh, they find a habitable situation. And the core theme of the movie is about like love because that's essentially how yeah. that's connected the father to his daughter over time and space. So Crazy. I think it was telling us how powerful like humanity can be when we stop thinking about profit and like all these like very, you know, hardcore 
quote unquote grounded concepts and start thinking about the things that make us happy to be alive, which part of one of the most powerful ones is, is love itself. And that made me hopeful about a future with uh, a, a species that can, you know, embrace that. That was beautiful. Yeah, was beautiful. That's, why, that's why I love that movie. Yeah, better than Anne Hathaway's version, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, the last question that we're asking everybody, and I think this actually might be the hardest question, is what are you personally most hopeful about right now? I think uh, one of my biggest hopes is also tied to one of my biggest fears because I do think we're in a point that things go, can go either way. And it's uh, privacy concerns when it comes to data. We've, we're in an age where people like uh, entities like Facebook are finally being called out for some huge breaches of privacy that they've done. Um, we're just a couple years past, you know, the Snowden uh, whistleblowing events and stuff. And generally, the general public's kind of quote unquote woken up to the fact that, first of all, yeah, something very uh, valuable, your data, which none of us thought was as valuable as it has been in the past uh, two decades. And someone else is doing a lot of things with it that you may not know about. Um, so we're definitely at a turning point, which either we finally take into our own hands and make sure that like our data is you know protected and valued, and or you know goes the other way, and like we've reached a turning point, which is kind of irreversible, and the policies are in place, and like the the culture that's in place, because people often don't think about the culture behind data privacy, but we're in a space where people are like, oh, okay, you can just take my data, what does it mean? Which is kind of scary to think about. Um, that could go one way or the other. So I'm hopeful about it because of like the way Facebook has been approached recently. And even like Amazon, there's some devices that they have, for example, like Ring, which is their like uh, door alarm thing that has a camera on the front. And before they were called out for it, it was recording and sending that data to Amazon. So now like because they were called out for it, now they have to give an option for people to turn that off. But yeah, Amazon, huge entities are finally being called out for it. I'm hoping that continues to trend. That was super specific. My answer is not. Um, I think my very basic hope, um, hopeful thought is that a lot more people are on the same train of thought and it's becoming more apparent that we all dislike or are recognizing the same things. And I hope if we keep moving in that way, like we all realize these things are a problem, then hopefully in some time, we will all <laughs> believe enough to make it, to make some kind of change towards it. I guess it's just like this collective idea, like if enough people take a stand against something, then something will happen, hopefully. I guess that's where the word hopefully comes in. <laughs> hopefully something will happen if we all recognize and act on it. Well, thank you both so, so much for coming on the show. This has been a delight. And everyone should absolutely go listen to the other two episodes of this phase. And then what are the, what's next? What's the next phase? Can you tell us Ooh. or is it a secret? No, we can tell you. We really can. <laughs> the next phase is DNA data storage. Um, it's oh. told in three parts. Mm -hmm. um, for We do an anthology series most of the time, but this time for this phase, all three episodes are going to be tied together. It's going to be a long saga of a story. And we're taking from uh, some real-life occurrences. So um, Harvard's been doing some experiments where they put uh, books and film clips into DNA, and we're exploring what it would look like in a world where this is 
pretty common. Um, what's it like for people who live in this world where DNA, I mean, data is being stored within the DNA of people? Sweet. Well, I, for one, cannot wait to hear that. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> Thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. This has been so fun. Thank you guys you. are great, great interviewers, Honestly, by the way. Definitely. That's all definitely. I want to hear. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, these have been great questions and it's uh, inspired a lot of thought on both our sides. Yeah. I think. Awesome. Thank you. Sixty Minutes Through Space was written and produced by Aditola Abdul Qadir and Sophia Cheatham. Sound designed by Sada S.B. Proctor. Narrated by Nicole Marie as Atiana Walker, Radiance Ware as Maya Walker, Jalen Smith as Amar Walker, Lorenzo Jones as Kevin Walker, Hector Tolentino as George Weller, Dwight Smith as Trevor, and Caroline Unger as the overhead announcer. To hear more, visit obsidianpodcast.com. Open World is a partnership between Philo's Future Media and Flash Forward Presents. Hosted by TK Dutess and Rose Eveleth. Produced by Brittany Brown. Intro music by Blue Dot Sessions. Additional sound design by TH Ponders. With engineering by C. You can contact us via social media. We are on the Twitters at Open World Pod. You can email us at hello at openworldradio.com. You can visit openworldradio.com for more about any of what you heard on this show, more links to the amazing creators who we featured here, how to find their work. Also, there are transcripts of each episode up on the website if you want to read those or revisit them. And we really loved taking this journey with you. So thanks for coming along for the ride.